We're looking at the introduction of the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter uh, 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke 1, 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this gospel account, this gospel according to Luke, Lord, we, we have a sense of expectation, a, a sense of, of hope, a sense of eagerness. Lord, to hear what you would teach us through your word. We also have a sense of confidence Lord God, that you are faithful and you will perform that which you have promised to accomplish. That you would work your word in the hearts of your people through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so Lord, as we approach Luke and then Acts afterwards, we're confident that the same God who was at work through these pages of this gospel and in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the in the the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the saints in the early church. Lord, remind us that you are the same God. The God that we get to know better. The God that we get to love more. The God that we get to worship from a, from a, a deeper heart of faith. Lord, help these things to take place in us. Lord, help us to know you more. Help us to love you more. Help us to worship you more. For your glory and for the building of your church. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Have you ever discovered an author that as soon as you read something from this author you just you had to pick up every book that this author ever wrote you couldn't get enough of this author until you read everything that they wrote for some of you it might be J.R.R. Tolkien for others maybe Mark Twain or Charles Dickens or all three of the Bronte sisters for my kids it would probably be Richard Scarry or Dr. Seuss the more theologically minded among us would, would probably say, hopefully say, Sinclair Ferguson or, or Paul David Tripp or, or some maybe would choose a, a Puritan like John Owen or John Bunyan. Those would all be excellent choices. When I was in grade five, I had to write book reports. I don't know if you've ever had to write book reports in school, but every two weeks I would have another book report due and, and I... I hated deadlines. I loved to read, but I hated deadlines and I, I hated writing these book reports. 
As soon as one was assigned, that the due date would, when, would hang over my head like a guillotine until I handed it in on that Monday morning, usually after a, a, a long Sunday evening of working feverishly to get it finished. I had no concept then of a Sabbath rest. And for me in grade five, there was, was only one author that I would choose, or rather several authors writing under one pseudonym, Franklin W. Dixon. The older folks among us would, would probably recognize the name of the series, The Hardy Boys. But every two weeks I would, I would read another Hardy Boys book and then, and then write a report on the plot and the characters and the, the setting and, and so on. And again, I would choose another Hardy Boys book again and again. I loved the mysteries and the, the exotic locations and how the brothers would manage to put the clues together to, to solve the case every single time. Then finally, my grade five teacher, Mr. Fulcher, told me to diversify. He said that that was enough of the Hardy Boys. He wanted me to read something different. And that's when I read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. I loved it. The development of the characters, the, the twists and the turns of the plot. I, I cried when, when Aslan gave up his life to the witch on the stone tablet in order to, to deliver Edmund. I rejoiced when, when somehow against all hope, Aslan turned out to be alive. It was a great story. And I wrote my book report on the line, the witch in the wardrobe, but I completely missed the point. Now, I don't remember what Mr. Fulcher thought, but he probably missed the point too. It wasn't until 15 years later when I was taking a class in children's literature and in, in preparation for, for a career in, career in teaching that I studied the book again. And, and, and that's when I understood it then. And as a Christian, I began to understand that this book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was, was written as an allegory, a, a metaphorical attempt to explain the gospel. But, and this is very important, C.S. Lewis missed the point too. What he represents in the book is known as, as the ransom theory of the atonement. When, when Aslan gives up his life, he is seen to be, um, to be taking Edmund's place, which in one sense is true. But according to C.S. Lewis, the penalty that is being paid is being paid to the witch, who represents Satan. My friends, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ gave up his life on the cross, it was not to satisfy the devil's demands. It was to satisfy God's demands. It was God's justice that had to be, that had to be satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. That is penal substitution. That Jesus, cried, that was, that Jesus died as a, as a substitute, that he was punished in our place. And that is the heart of the gospel. C.S. Lewis's ransom theory is sub-Christian. In fact, in another book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity, he refers directly to substitutionary atonement as a very silly theory. He denies that Jesus died as a punishment for our sins. Yes, C.S. Lewis 
completely missed the point. Now, there are other places where Lewis does get closer to the mark, and he does have some helpful insights, but to my knowledge, at least in his writing, C.S. Lewis never got it right. Well, this morning, we're going to be diving into the work of another author, an author who did get it right, an author who, who precisely got the point, an author who, who carefully compiled, diligently wrote, and faithfully delivered an account of the gospel, all under the superintendence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Speaking, of course, of Luke, the beloved physician, the faithful co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. Unlike C.S. Lewis, Dr. Luke was a skilled historian and a faithful theologian, carefully chronicling the events and of, the, of the scriptures of the gospel and of, and of the early church and then drawing out their meaning and their significance. So Luke, the spirit-inspired human author of the gospel according to Luke and of the Acts of the Apostles, is going to be our friend over, over the next three plus years. Luke and Acts go together. The beginning of Acts, as, as we're going to see in a couple of years, Lord willing, looks back to the beginning of Luke. They're, they're very parallel. There's many other parallels. Luke details the, the birth and the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Acts details the birth and ministry of the local church. Both are addressed to Theophilus. In Luke, Jesus is born. In Acts, the church is born. In Luke, Jesus heals. In Acts, Peter and Paul heal. In Luke, Jesus' teaching leads him to a confrontation with the Jews and the Romans. In Acts, Peter's teaching leads him to a confrontation with the Romans. And Paul's teaching leads him to a confrontation with the Jews and the Romans. In Luke, Jesus' mission leads him to his death in Jerusalem. In Acts, Paul's mission leads him to imprisonment in Rome, where he is eventually martyred. So these two volumes, Luke and Acts, present, as John MacArthur says, the most comprehensive account of New Testament history of redemption. Over 65 years of history, the most pivotal period in Earth's history is represented here. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And so Luke, along with Acts, makes, makes Luke the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Paul wrote more letters, but Luke wrote more material. Over a quarter of the New Testament is in these two books, Luke and Acts. So again, we're going to be spending a lot of time with Luke over the next few years. As I said to the kids, I'm estimating a little over, over two years in Luke and and a little bit more than, and more than a year in Acts. Over three years with one author. But I'm not going to be churning out book reports. Lord willing, I'm going to churn out sermons empowered by the Holy Spirit. I wonder what Mr. Fulcher would say. If you're going to spend time with an author, you are in very good company with Luke. French scholar Ernest Renan declared that the gospel according to Luke is the most beautiful book there is. 
J.R. Packer said that Luke's portrait of Jesus as Son of God and Savior of the world, man of the Spirit and lover of the lost, fulfiller of prophecies and of a suffering Messiah and blazer thereby of the trail that leads to glory haunts the mind. As do the brief but telling vignettes of people, the people with whom Jesus spent time during his life on earth. So this morning is going to serve as an introduction to the gospel according to Luke as we focus on the first four verses, Luke's own introduction to his gospel account. As we walk through these verses, we're going to learn a little bit more about Luke. We're going to be introduced to the addressee of this two-volume set, the most excellent Theophilus. We'll identify the five major sections of the book and we're going to briefly discuss the major themes. So Luke begins, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Friends, Christianity is a religion built on historical facts. J.C. Ryle explains that the preachers did not, early, the first preachers did not go up and down the world proclaiming an elaborate artificial system of obscure doctrines and deep principles. They made it their first business to tell people great, plain facts. It continues, they, they went about telling a sin-laden world that the Son of God had come down to earth, had lived for us, and died for us, as it rose again for us. So then Acts is, is the, the history of Jesus Christ. And that's what Luke sets out to, to represent in his gospel account. Luke says that, that many had undertaken to, compi to compile a narrative. He, he, he speaks of, of things that have been accomplished among them, the, the things that have been accomplished through Jesus Christ and his, his plan of redemption before their very eyes. So he, he, he can't go to the source because, directly because Jesus has, been ascend has ascended to the Father. But he goes to the eyewitnesses, to those who had walked and talked with Jesus. I've often wondered what it would have been like to have been there. To have walked with Jesus, to have listened to his preaching, to have witnessed his miracles, especially his resurrection. This was especially the case when I visited Israel in, in 2008. Spending Christmas Eve in a, in a cave in Bethlehem, seeing ancient water jugs in Cana, walking through the Capernaum archaeological site, sitting by the Sea of Galilee, very likely in the, in the place where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, walking through the streets of Jerusalem, standing on the Temple Mount, seeing the hill that, that has the face of a skull in it, very likely Golgotha, the hill of the skull, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And then just adjacent to that, there's, there's a garden with a tomb. And I was able to, to go into the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. You can go into the tomb. And I was able to come back out of the tomb. As I, as I walked around Israel and, and experienced these things, I thought, what would it have been like to have been here 2,000 years ago? But you know what? You don't have to go to Israel to experience these things. You can experience, experience these things in God's Word. 
You can experience many of them in the Gospel of Luke. And you can experience all of them by reading all four of the Gospel accounts. Because of the Gospels, because of faithful eyewitnesses, because of the faithful recording of Luke and the other writers, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you can walk with Jesus. You can listen to his preaching. You can witness the miracles. You can witness the resurrection. You can walk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and hear him reveal how all the scriptures point to him. You can see how God accomplished his plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. All of these things are here for us in God's word through the power of his Holy Spirit. And I, I trust, I, I, I'm confident that, that we will be, with the eyes of faith, be able to see these things and be impacted by these things every bit as much as if we were there ourselves. The major theme of Luke is, is the accomplishment of God's plan through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is, is one of the, the strongest themes, and, and, and he's going to pick it up on it again in the book of Acts. We see the accomplishment of God's plan through the Holy Spirit. Acts, as you're wearing your Bible, is, is most commonly referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. But it's also called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, and I believe that is a, a much more appropriate title because this is the Acts represent, represents the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Apostles to build the early church. So in Acts and Luke, we, we see that God has fulfilled his promises and he will continue to do so. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. His sinless life, his sovereignty over all things, his authoritative teaching, his substitutionary death, his resurrection and his ascension all demonstrate that Jesus Christ can be trusted, that God can be trusted. They demonstrate not only that God can be trusted, but that God must be trusted. Think especially for a moment about Jesus', Jesus substitutionary death and his atonement. I, I spent a fair bit of time about on this last week. As what was, we wonder what was going on in the, in the hearts, we get a little bit of a glimpse of it, but in the hearts and the minds of his disciples on that Friday as he was crucified. And then the, the, in the ensuing days until, until Sunday morning, they, they, were, they were grieved, deeply, deeply grieved. They had, they had so many questions. They had so many doubts and, and fears. But the resurrection calmed all of their doubts, alleviated all of their fears, and answered all of their questions. Well, the vast majority of their questions. Again, Acts is a vitally important sequel to Luke. In Acts, Luke is going to continue to emphasize the importance of the cross. And it's, it is a foundation for the newly born church. 
So the first recipients of this gospel account, which is likely written in the early 60s, would need this reminder. Christians living under Roman rule would experience horrific persecution at, at the hands of Nero just a, a few years later in the mid-60s. And then a few years after that, Christians in Jerusalem would face the sacking of the city and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So in, the, in, in Luke and Acts, we see that the kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been fulfilled. And so they must faithfully, patiently, expectantly, prayerfully look for its final fulfillment at Christ's return. No matter what happens in this life, in the interim, God can and must be trusted. Jesus Christ alone brings the fulfillment of God's promises. Because He is the fulfillment of God's promises. And we need this reminder too, don't we? We need to be reminded that no matter what happens between now and the end of our lives or the return of Jesus Christ, God can and must be trusted. And so that's what we find out here in Luke. Luke continues in verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Luke here is describing the stages of the transmission of these truths, these gospel truths. First of all, the events in themselves that were experienced. And then the witnesses recording of these events. And then finally the passing on of the details about those, of those events, which Luke himself is now passing on to Theophilus. And then through the providence of God, this has been passed on to you and me. So they, these, these apostles, these eyewitnesses, were there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, Luke actually goes into great detail about the events before the ministry of Jesus, with the, the birth of John the Baptist and the, the birth of, of Jesus Christ. So unlike other gospel accounts, um, Luke talks about John as the forerunner of Jesus, as the, the prophet and the baptizer of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke doesn't identify who the eyewitnesses and ministers were, but, but Mark is a very likely candidate. Because both Luke and Mark had traveled with the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. We see that in, in Acts, and, and where both of them are referred to, well, sorry, where, where he is referred to, Mark is referred to by name, and where, uh, where the, the writer of, of Acts, Luke, refers several times to we when it comes to, to, the, the, missionary, to the, the ship journeys that, that they were on. He says, we did this and we went there. And then later on in, in Colossians, the Apostle Paul speaks of, of Luke, of, of the, his beloved, the beloved physician who was a co-laborer with him. And then in 2 Timothy, he says that, that all, others, all others have deserted me. Only Luke is with me. This is Luke. This is the writer of Luke and Acts. But these eyewitnesses, these, these men and women, very likely some from the, the Jerusalem church, are people that Luke likely would have, have consulted. Matthew was there as well. He could have and very likely consulted Matthew. But all of these people 
All of these eyewitnesses were simply ministers or servants of the word. It's a good lesson here for us as well. Again, these, these, these ministers were servants. And a servant of the word must be faithful to the word. These eyewitnesses, again, were mere servants of the word. But now we don't know precisely who they were, but they were faithful servants of the word. They were trustworthy servants of the word. I am, to a far lesser extent, a servant of the word. I will be judged by the Lord according to my faithfulness to the word, or, God forbid, lack thereof. But when I deliver these message, messages to you, I'm just delivering God's mail. You are a servant of God's word as well. And God will also judge you as to whether you are faithful to his word. Are you faithfully delivering God's mail? What would you think of a, of a mailman who, who opened the letters that he was supposed to be delivering and made changes? Adding a couple zeros to your bills. Or putting photo of his, photos of his own family in your Christmas cards. Or writing a few personal touches to a love letter. That's not faithfulness. You don't mess around with somebody else's mail. Or, or what would you think of a, of a mailman who, who instead of delivering the mail, actually just let it stack up in his living room and never delivered it to anybody? Servants of God's word will be judged according to the way that they have handled God's word, to their fidelity to God's word and their faithfulness to transmit or to pass along God's word. Are you faithfully delivering God's mail? Verse 3. Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now Luke is essentially saying here that he feels he can, he can bring something to the table. He feels like he has something worthwhile to contribute to this gospel message. Now, it's interesting that over one-third of Luke's material is not found in other gospel accounts. Now, the only extant gospel accounts that, that were, were written um, prior to Luke were, were the gospels according to, to Matthew and Mark. The gospel according to John was written far, far later, probably towards the, the end of the first century. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known collectively as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic literally means together sight. So they, they see together from a similar point of view, from a similar perspective. And they each cover many of the same events in Jesus' life. But they also have their distinctives. Whereas, whereas Matthew tended to focus on a Jewish audience, Focusing on Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, Mark is very, was very likely writing to Roman Gentiles. Focusing on Jesus as the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. 
John's audience is, is more difficult to identify, but it's, it's clear that he was writing to unbelievers because his stated purpose was to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that readers would, his readers would find life in Jesus' name. But together, these four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us a, a, four, a fully orbed picture of Jesus' life and ministry. It's, it's kind of like looking at a, at a diamond, at a beautiful diamond. As you look at the different gospel accounts, you get different facets of the life and ministry of Jesus and the implications. So again, we'll be focusing for the next two plus years in, on this gospel account in Luke, on Luke's perspective. Now we'll touch on some of the other gospel accounts as well as we, as we tie it together, but we're going to be focusing mainly on Luke as we continue then after that into Acts. So Luke adds another perspective. Writing as a Gentile, predominantly two Gentiles, he, he wrote it to, it was a, a, broader, a broader Gentile audience that he had in mind. Describing Jesus as the, the one who, who welcomes the outsider because to the Jews, Gentiles were outsiders. They, they were the disenfranchised in that culture. Now this idea of, the, of, the, of, of Jesus welcoming the outsider is, is another recurring theme in Luke. Not just Gentiles, but, but all of the disenfranchised of, of that culture. Samaritans, women, children, tax collectors, the sick, including lepers, the crippled, and the demon-possessed, and Sinners. Jesus welcomed the outsider. Jesus welcomed sinners. And this theme is especially prominent in Luke. God's love for sinners. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This theme is, is echoed in, in many of the, the best known parables in Jesus' ministry. The, the lost and found parables. Especially the, the prodigal son. We see God's plan of redemption worked out in the lives of individual sinners. The offer of, of hope, the offer of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayer and praise also figure prominently. Luke records many of the prayers of Jesus and, and seven of, of them are only found in, in his gospel account. The, the Sermon on the, on the Plain, which is parallel to Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount, in which a, a prayer very similar to the model prayer is also taught. Jesus teaches his disciples there to pray a very similar prayer to the model prayer that we looked at a couple of years ago. Luke also records hymns of praise that aren't found in any of the other gospel accounts. Mary's Magnificat at the, the promise of the Messiah in Luke 1, 46-55. Zechariah's Benedictus after the birth of John also over the promise of the Messiah in, in 1, 68-79. The glory song of the angels at the announcement of Jesus' birth in, in 2.14. And Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, um, after seeing the baby Jesus in the temple in, in chapter 2, verses 29-32. to 32. Now, now it's really interesting, it wasn't on purpose, I don't tend to preach the calendar, but, but these are very appropriate things to be looking at in light of the Advent. And it wasn't planned, at least not by me, but, but we're going to be looking at the birth of Jesus on December 22nd. That's pretty, that's pretty good timing. 
But Luke says that he has followed all things closely for some time past. Luke is a very careful historian. He is extremely careful and accurate in presenting facts and details. More so even, I mean, the, the other gospel writers are, are very accurate as well, but, but Luke is very precise in, in what he presents. Presenting detailed facts that the other, some of the other gospel accounts don't have. Sir William Ramsey, who was a 19th century Nobel Prize winning chemist, was convinced that Luke was a, was a poor historian. So he traveled to Asia Minor in order to prove his presupposition, in order to prove that Luke was actually a poor historian. But what happened is when he traveled to this place and he, 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 he uncovered the facts of, of, what had, of what had happened, he proved himself wrong. And he came back a Christian, declaring Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Now, I'm not an evidentialist in my apologetics. If, if you're not sure you can talk to, what that means, you can talk to me afterwards. It's not the evidence that, that, that proves it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that reveals to our hearts that these things are true. Evidence on its own will never convince anyone of the gospel. Because the presupposition of unbelievers is that, is that these things are not true. And so we need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in order to be able to see the truth, truths of these things. But it should come as no surprise that Sir William Ramsey discovered that, that Luke was, was faithful in his presentation of the facts because Luke wasn't writing on his own. Luke was carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guided his thoughts and used Luke's distinctive personality so that every single word is exactly what God wanted it to be. This is known as verbal plenary inspiration, that, that every single word of God in the original manuscripts is inspired by the Holy Spirit, exactly as God wanted it to be. So Luke is an exemplary historian, but Luke is not just a historian. Luke is, is primarily a historical theologian. He, he doesn't just include details about events, but he reveals their implications. Luke is a key theologian in the New Testament. As, as I. Howard Marshall explains, Luke is more interested in conveying religious and theological truths than he is in writing a history. Now this is a history but this is a history that has very powerful and clear implications that Luke draws out in, in the way that he presents his material. So Luke's focus is salvation historical. He presents the events and he shows them their significance. He shows that, that, that what things that God has promised were already fulfilled in the coming of Christ in order to provide assurance for the believers in what has not yet been fulfilled. Again, from John MacArthur, he says, A good theologian is analytical, logical, and systematic. His goal is to persuade people to understand and accept doctrinal truth by a means of a thoughtful, logical, progressive, consistent, persuasive explanation. As we walk through Luke together, we will see that, that Luke is a theologian par excellence. We trust that through the power of the Holy Spirit, these truths will be driven into our hearts. Again, as I pray, that we will, we will know Jesus better. They will, we will love him more, that our, our worship will be more guided by his word. 
So Luke explains that he set out to write an orderly account. Now, orderly account here does not mean that he presented these things in order, in, in chronological order, although his present, presentation is largely chronological, but that he, because he, he does, in some places, present things in a different order than in the other Gospels. Rather, when Luke says that he set out to write an orderly account, it means that, that he, has, he has organized the information that he was inspired to record in an orderly way, in an orderly fashion. There are five identifiable sections in Luke's gospel account. The first is the introduction, including the birth of, of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ in, in chapter 1, 1 to 252. And then we see the, the preparation for Jesus' ministry and the beginning of his ministry in chapter 3, 1 to 413. And then we see Jesus' ministry in Galilee in, in 4.14 to 9.50. And so you see, a lot of this is really geographical. As Jesus traveled through the various regions ministering, Luke follows along and records what he did, records what happened and why. But here in, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're going to see that this theme of rejection of Jesus. Right away in in, in his very first recorded sermon. We see that Jesus is rejected and, and the people wanted to kill him because of, of what he had declared. We see Jesus' teaching and his, his miracles bearing testimony to who he is as the Lord, as he has authority over disease and, and demons and even death, how all of creation bows to his sovereign rule. Then this section comes to a climax with the, the transfiguration as, as for a moment Jesus' glory is unveiled for Peter and James and John on the mountain. And then that section closes with Jesus foretelling his death. The fourth section deals with, with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in, in chapter 5 or 951 to 1944. And the focus here is, is more on the, the parables and, and Jesus' teaching becomes more pointed and, and more directed to, to bring things to a head between him and the Pharisees. And it comes to a climax with the triumphal entry as, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on, on the, the foal of a donkey and then goes into the temple. Then the last section, 1945 to 2453, deals with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And then we go to, to Acts. We'll see that, that Acts begins with a, a brief recap of, of what had happened at the end where Jesus is, is ministering to his disciples and then ascends at the beginning of Acts. And then we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the church grows and God is fulfilling his promises to the church. So Luke addresses this gospel account to most excellent Theophilus. As I mentioned at the outset, Acts is addressed to him as well. The name Theophilus is Greek and it means loved by God or, or friend of God. Luke describes him as most excellent. Paul uses the same term to refer to Felix and Festus. So, so Theophilus was probably a, a high-ranking Roman official. 
And we don't know if this is the same Theophilus or not. It's his conjecture. But, but, but second century sources speak of an influential leader and great lord named Theophilus in the city of Antioch during the time of Luke. So he could have been a wealthy benefactor who supported Paul and Luke on, on, his missionary, on their missionary journey. There was also a high priest named Theophilus who was, was high priest in Jerusalem from AD 37 to 41, the son of Annas, brother of, of Caiaphas. Now again, we don't know if, if, if that's the, the same Theophilus or not. It's all speculation. We, we simply can't know who Theophilus was. It's also possible, it's not likely, but it's possible that because it means friend of God or loved by God, that the name Theophilus is meant to refer to, to Christians in general. To those who are loved by God, to those who are the friends of God. And by application and extension, whether that's true or not, this letter is addressed to you. Finally, in verse 4, Luke explains why he wrote this letter to Theophilus. He says, That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke's gospel is written in conjunction with the other, the other church materials that detail the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ. Similarly, Acts was written to continue that testimony in the early church. Together they go from the birth of John the Baptist through to the, the birth, life, ministry, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and then through the spread of the church all the way to Rome and beyond through the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives and the ministry of the apostles. Daryl Bach, Bach explains that, that Luke is the fulfillment of God's promise and the fulfillment of salvation, which is now directly available to all nations. So Luke wrote so that Theophilus would have certainty about the things that he had been taught. Creeds and confessions, statements of faith, Theologians, past and present, pastors, at least the, the biblical ones, are helpful. But we have to remember the Reformation's grounding principle in sola scriptura. The, these other things are, are helps to us. They're benefits. They're gifts of God to us for our growth. But scripture alone is the sufficient and supreme authority in all spiritual matters. Scripture through the work of the Holy Spirit is an infinitely greater help than I or any other human being could ever be. Just think about, about what was happening in, the, in this era when, when Luke wrote this. The, the persecution that was, was beginning and would soon get, get wrapped up. And many in the early church would lose their lives because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the reality as we pray every week for our brothers and sisters around the world. If you were in that position, if, if, you, were, if, you, were with, where, if you were experiencing this, these types of, of persecution, parallel to what was taking place in the early church, maybe not to the same extreme, but certainly difficult, what sorts of things would you want to know what sort of things would you need to be reminded of? Where would you want to be pointed to to, to place your hope? 
in the fulfillment of God's promises through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Luke presents these things to Theophilus and by extension to us so that we too can have confidence. So that no matter what we face in this life, we can rest assured, we can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. So Luke laid down this Holy Scripture through the superintendence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help Theophilus and to help all Christians after him to have certainty, to have confidence of the things they've been taught so that he and we would have no doubt concerning the facts of our faith. We fast forward to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Spoiler warning. On that road to Emmaus, when Jesus is, is walking with the two disciples and, and he beginning with, with, they had no idea who he was. But then he beginning with Moses and all the prophets interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. And then in verse 44, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything about Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And as we look at the Gospel of Luke, as, we, as it points to Jesus, points to who Jesus is, points to the fulfillment of God's promises in and through Jesus Christ. I'm dependent. We're all dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. We're dependent, we're confident that the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts through the time that we spend with Luke. I'm confident that as we walk through Luke and then Acts together, that God will work in the hearts of his people, that he will reveal to us the truths about Jesus Christ. Now, you might not be that, Theophilus, but brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. This letter is written to you as well. You can have certainty about the things that you have been taught. You are Theophilus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for his life, for his ministry, his miracles, Lord, for all of his teaching for the way that he fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed the covenant of works, the covenant that we break every day. Lord, we praise you for his perfect and holy life. We praise you for his substitutionary death. We praise you, Lord, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Heavenly Father, as you poured out your wrath on him in our place, we praise you for this glorious gospel. 
We praise you, Lord, that it was impossible for death to hold him, that he rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell. And he's ascended to your right hand, where he is even at this very moment interceding for us. And we praise you for the transmission of these things from these first eyewitnesses and servants of your word to Luke, to Theophilus, and to us in your providence. Lord, we praise you that we have access to your word and that through your Holy Spirit, we have access to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and is now at work in the hearts of those who believe. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we spend this time together in Luke and Acts, that you do the same kind of work that you did back then. Lord, that you would save souls and build your church for the glory of your name. Amen.